out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the musician, bass player and writer. It is Will Carruthers, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other quite groovy stuff. Anyway, one time member of Spaceman 3 and Spiritualized was also in various other bands, I think about 30, including the Brian Jonestown Massacre, um, Free Love Babies, which I think is the work title of his own solo work, and lots of others. But anyway, we're going to find out more about that and also his book. So sit back, relax and enjoy. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Will, it's over to you. Musical awakening. My musical awakening was probably the three records that my dad left behind before he fucked off, which was Buddy Holly, Louis Armstrong, and Ray Charles. So I, I vividly remember them being played. And I remember the babysitter that used to come around. She used to bring an Elvis record and then she used to sneak us off for a a bottle of Coke and a bag of crisps in the back of a little minivan at the right. Flying Saucer in, in Lottsworth. So it's all kind of, I don't know, inextricably linked in me to this kind of vaguely naughty behaviour. Do you know Elvis? I'd hear Elvis and then we'd be sitting in the minivan being sworn to secrecy about. And then, I don't know, after that, uh, I like the Jungle Book. I had, a, I had a copy of the Jungle Book and I loved I loved that album when I was a kid. I think it's the first one I, I, that I got to Shoes, I was like, on that jungle book, and it's great. The stuff on there, all the Louis Prima stuff, and that is fucking amazing. But after that, I don't know if later on when I got to choose, I'm a little bit younger than you, so I think the first actual album I ever bought was probably a Blondie album. I think it was Parallel Lines, Parallel right. Lines or E to the B. Yes, well, Parallel Lines did have an amazing. Well, just had sort of, I don't know how many tracks, but there was one which is still my favourite, 1159, which was just on side two, and it was just awesome record. So, um, yes, those two by Blondie. I think my second L, a single I bought was Denis Denis by Blondie, So, um, and it had something like Contact in Red Square and um, Ripper to Shreds as a B-side. So, Yeah, yeah that's good stuff. There were, there were some band. There yes. Were so with your... Pop. So did you have any brothers or sisters that had any musical influence on you apart from your babysitter? I would say my sister, I've got a younger sister, and she had some influence on me kind of in reverse. She got into all the, after I'd been kind of completely consumed by music later on, she kind of sideways glimpsed me. But there was a, a fellow up the road called Martin Brennan and his brother, Sean Brennan, a vast record collection and was crazy for like all the old punk stuff and Cabaret Voltaire and just like all this the weird obscure stuff. So we'd go and dig through his records and steal them away, you know, stiff little fingers and I don't know. Yeah, Cabaret Voltaire was a particular favourite for me, I guess around 84, 85. Yeah. I know. 
Yeah, yeah. So that he, he was a big influence quietly. Yeah. And then John Peel, I guess. I guess, yes. So about 83, 84, you were 16. Did you leave school at that age or did you go on to greater things or college? <laughs> Educationally, yes. not really. I, I left, I did my levels, uh, started doing my A-levels, got thoroughly disenchanted and fucked off to Birmingham and got a job in a factory at 17. So I was working in a sheet metal factory at 17. Right. Because right. the, the only other person I talk, hear talking about sheet metal is obviously Tommy from Tommy Iona from Black, Black Sabbath. So Black you, Sabbath, yeah. Did you, because um, I had an older brother who was into prog rock, but he did have two heavy metal albums, uh, Black Sabbath and Deep Purple. Were Deep um, Black Sabbath an influence on your musical horizon? Were they not really? We were listening to a lot of that. But I did work with a guy who used to sell hash to Ozzy Osbourne. And he told me that story. He's like, yeah, I used to sell hash to Ozzy. He said he was crazy as a fucking loon when he was 16. You know, he told me a story about him coming around the house once to buy some hash. He said and he'd gone out saying, oh, he's going to get some cider. And then about an hour later, they heard a, a commotion out, outside on the landing. So they opened the door and Ozzy was kicking down the next door neighbour's door because he thought they weren't answering. So, you know, in that way, it was kind of an influence just because it's like, oh, I work with somebody that sold hash to Ozzy Osbourne. But metal wasn't a big thing for me, really. I was never, never a metaler somehow. Yes. Stooges, I got into the I got into the Stooges at 17 and then it was all a bit absurd. Like I found all that 80s metal kind of absurd, all that lycra and kind of hairspray. We were a bit dirtier, you know, we were a bit, a bit dirtier. Yes, well, I never got to the 80s heavy metal, but the 70s, you know, um, obviously Motorhead, but there was also a massive, because yeah. I've sort of, from the countryside of East Anglia, the status quo were very important in our lives. You had, to like the, you had to like the quo or you would get beaten up. But Deep Purple were the other band, but I didn't get into hair, hair metal, but I just wondered if Black Sabbath, because they were your kind of local local band. Not really. I mean, I kind of, I came to them late. I love the, I love Sabbath stuff now. You know, I love it. And I'll, I even, you know, indulge in a little hair, hair metal occasionally if I'm, if I'm pushed to it, you know, if, I'm, if it's impossible to escape. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it was never really a huge, a huge influence. Because I mean, the time was like 16, 17. Then we kind of got into all, the old 60s psychedelia. So we got into that really early, you know, age-wise. So by the time we were into that, it was just like, you know, it was an antidote to everything else that was being foisted upon us in some ways. And it was, it seemed more uh, mysterious. <laughs> well, absolutely. Yes, there's nothing, there was nothing quite as exciting as hearing the, I don't know, Captain Beefheart or or the Velvet Underground and um, such Especially when the actual information about them was limited. So you were kind of able to build a mythology around them in your own mind, just purely in your imagination. Imagine that the way that they lived. You know, yes. I kind of like that, that the information wasn't there. It was limited. It was very the limited. Was, yeah, so the for elevators were like, it could have been creatures from outer space as far as. I was concerned. And they probably were. You know? Captain Beefheart certainly is. 
Yes. I'm pretty sure he came, he came from another planet. Well, I did an interview with John French, John Drombo French, who sort of was doing the magic band. He was kind of touring, I don't know, probably five, six years ago. So I did a couple of interviews because he was coming to Norwich and he did say it was quite harrowing experience working with the captain because he kind of got locked in the house to do Trout Mask Replica, didn't they? He wouldn't, he oh, wouldn't be able to leave. And they didn't have prop, you know, weren't properly fed, and he was quite young at the time, so he was kind of traumatized by the whole experience of this kind of still traumatized. No pleasant memories of it at all. No, no. I mean, to be fair, that's been in bands in general, isn't it? Really, it's very <laughs> traumatic. I've been in like thirty-five of them, and they all have their little traumas somehow. Yeah, I mean, tra- but tra- what's a trauma but a dream? But it's, it's merely a dream. A I think he did. Dream. Well, I think with Drumbo French, I think he just wished he had sort of been in a band like Crosby, Stills and Nash, you know, and just kind of got a nice little paycheck, and you know, rather than just this tortured artist, got no money, got sort of um, kind of um, emotionally abused, I guess, and um, just kind of left really. As I can young- understand that. I can understand that because I mean, I'd much rather have been in Funkadelic. You know, to be fair, yes, it would have been a choice again, or or a heavy or a heavy metal band. I'd quite like to have been in a heavy metal band, just because it was probably more fun. But, I know, think I think I think those recording experiences where it's almost residential, whereas you know, like Trapmas Replica was recorded in a low, you know, a lonely location with no one else in a house, you know, yeah. and everyone slowly turning mad. I think it was probably a bit hard, really. But when you listen to the album, there is a certain you think, my God, these people were on another planet, weren't they? I have to say I'm a big Captain Beefheart fan and I've never made it all the way through Trout Mass Replica and I don't understand it why anybody would ever want to. I'm just, I like dip in now and again and I, I really enjoy the lyrics. I really enjoy his lyrics, and, but I've never made it through that album. You know, I love the cover, <laughs> but fuck making that one. You know what I mean? I must yeah. have been miserable. So when did you get an in, a musical instrument? When did sort of music sort of, when did you think, right, I'm not just going to be a fan, I'm going to sort of pick up a bass? It was pretty shallow, really, to be honest, my first instrument. is me and my friends have gone to BMXs. I was, I was a BMX kid when I was about, I don't know, 6, 15, 16. And then at a certain point, me and my friends group decided that, you know, it wasn't that impressive to members of the opposite sex to uh, have a fucking BMX. Do you know what I mean? We were just like sad kids jumping off ramps in the street. So yeah. then we started playing guitars. I'm not sure if it was actually that shallow, but I've got a horrible feeling that that was a fairly big motivating factor. It was just a bit cooler to play an instrument. So, yeah, I got a guitar. I bought a guitar off a heavy metal woman who looked like Susie Quattro. And it was an Eros Mark II Gibson copy. So I got that and then started playing. And there was loads of guitarists in the first sort of band I was in. And I was probably the worst of them. So I was relegated to bass guitar fairly quickly, which, you know, was fine by me. Yes, well, I think think Lemmy Kilmeister, I think Mm. the reason he sort of picked up a guitar was that he saw other people and the members of the opposite sex were naturally drawn to it. So, um, he thought, right, that's it. I'm going to be in the Rock and Vickers, and and off I go because that's that's just going to work. And it did. So I guess it was, you know, at sixteen. It, just seemed, it seems really shallow to say it because it didn't actually work out that way anyway. You know, I just ended up sitting in my bedroom for fucking hours trying to learn how to play Batman. Do you know? <laughs> but <laughs> so 
you know, arguably it just it just led to more masturbation. Yes, well, that that sort of age, it's it's you know, it's it keeps you. Amused. It's inevitable. <laughs> it's never cheap. Yes, we hadn't even got it in, isn't it? <laughs> well, it was a cheap light and also you know we didn't have anything to distract us there was very few little things to sort of go oh that's a bit more interesting you know we we hadn't even probably got a phone in the house at that stage in our life so um yes it was we didn't have dial-up computers nothing yeah no, no. it's just you could go up the park hang about up the park but even that you know it's just yeah the music it was good it was a good way to sit in a bedroom and kind of entertain yourself really with that you know? dream the dream and, no, I don't think I had any dreams. Or honestly, I never thought about being in a band or like any, I didn't have any ambitions, but it was just something to do. And then I took the guitar with me to the factory and I was living in this Irish pub in uh, Birmingham in Small Heath at the end of the Leyland factory. So I was all of a sudden at 17. And the only thing I took with me was the guitar because I just loved playing the guitar. And I used to listen to Jimi Hendrix a lot, and Electric Ladyland. And I failed miserably to sound like, and I still am failing miserably to be as good as Jimi Hendrix, <laughs> along with everybody else in the world. So That's kind of, yeah, but you are pitching yourself quite ambitiously here. I'm not, you know, I don't, you don't want to ever put anyone down, but Jimi Hendrix is kind of quite special, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, you're going you're gonna to try and be as good as, I never thought I'd be as good as Jimi Hendrix. To be, actually, I always to get be honest, it mixed it up. Is it Noel Redding who's the bassist or Mitch Mitchell? Noel Redding was the bass player. Mitch Mitchell was the drummer. No, and I believe I believe that Jimi Hendrix played a little bit of the bass, especially on that, especially on the later albums. I think maybe it, he's, it sounds like him on Electric Ladyland. Some of the bass playing. Yes, well, I think he was getting fed up with the band at that stage, wasn't he? So I think he well, was going on with the band of gypsies or Rainbow Gypsies, whatever he called them at Woodstock. Yes, so you you were sort of walk. So Hendrix, yes, obviously our main man at the. Listening to Purple Haze when you were 16, it always seems very impressive. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It was, I think it was Axis Bold as Love. That was one of the first albums I bought after, after my initial kind of infatuation with music. And I don't know, I was always drawn to uh, the more uh, lyrical side of his playing. I like his ballads. You know, yes. I love the ballads and I like his gentler tones. I don't think he gets much much appreciation for that. People love the full-on bangers, but he was a, he was a jazzy motherfucker, soulful, jazzy he motherfucker. Was. Well, there's a beautiful song called, I think, Drifting, isn't there? Drifting, which was one of his... Drifting's lovely. And, and then the, the quieter stuff on uh, Electric Ladyland's a love and Little Wing. I mean, is this metal? Some people would consider it metal, wouldn't they? He was a, he was a metal precursor, I imagine. No, it wasn't. It, he wasn't like. I don't, he wasn't like Jeff Beck or Eric Clapton. I don't think he had that. I think he was too soulful. Actually, I think he he had a soul jazz kind of rhythm and blues vibe to him that was beyond metal. Because he, he came from that background, right? I mean, he played with he played with the soul reviews and stuff. So that came through. Even in the psychedelia, there was always that kind of soul influence, which I, I like, and I love all those old soul tunes, you know. Yeah, like and he played with Little Richard as well, very briefly. Exactly, exactly. He knew his, he knew his chops, you know. So, 
He had that heritage. And I mean, it's the thing with the Hendrix, just on the Hendrix, there is a sort of, I think there's something kind of like you can move to his music, whereas a lot of those other guys playing are kind of, they're more head, they're not really coming from the bass, the bass chakra, yeah. are they? They're not coming from the hip, you know, they're not like, wow, this is kind of got, anyway, so that's my theory. Too much head, too much head and not enough hips, all right? Can we, can we terrible? Yeah, so I, I think he definitely had hips. He definitely had yeah, you, hips. You've got to have the hips. Right? You've got, you've to, got to. So was that, as the as the sixties progressed, and you were did you stay sixty as the eighties progressed? Were you staying in the um, yeah that we were in the eighties still? Um, were you still in the sort of sheet metal factory kind of throughout that period, or had Thatcher destroyed the industry? Um, it was. It, I think it was the real fag end of what of what that industry was in Birmingham when I was working over there, I was working in the jewelry quarter and there was lots of little shops, like little sheet metal shops and little watchmakers and jewelers. And you could look through the window and see people working. And I think that's pretty much gone now. I haven't been over there for a long time, but I think it's pretty much gone. I don't think there's that manufacturing, small scale manufacturing. So I guess that was on the way out, but I was going back to rugby I was living in this Irish pop, so I was hearing a lot of Irish music from the from the jukebox till like four in the morning. The Queen's Head at the end of Garrison Lane was no. quite a it was quite a pop, you know, it really was. So that was like full of people working road gangs, and you know, a lot of people working on road gangs. The Irish people there, so that was quite a, an eye opener at seventeen. They were lovely people to me, of course. So I learned to drink Guinness, and then I went back to rugby, which is where of course, I'm, I grew up, and then I was hanging out with the musicians and getting into all sorts of nefarious <laughs> ways of life. There, yes. So, did and you was, were you sort of a John Peel listener at this stage? Were you listening to? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, even at the factory, like being back in the pub, I remember listening to John Peel, hearing like "Never Understand," <clears throat> hearing the Mary Chain. And stuff I remember hearing that stuff. I had tickets to see them twice in Birmingham, and they, I think they cancelled both because they were a threat to civilization or something. <laughs> yes, there was that stage, wasn't there? But you probably got Zig Zig Sputnik instead. So did, I did see Zig Zig Sputnik. I did see Zig Zig Sputnik in Coventry, Coventry Poly, and I guess that was about eighty-five. And that was the most violent gig I've ever been to in my life. It was, he was goading the crowd. Martin Degville was goading the crowd, basically going, you'll never amount to anything. You're a bunch of fucking losers. You know, you'll never do anything. I'm like, mate, you're in fucking Coventry. Do you know, I, I was told once walking around Coventry, stop smiling. You'll get your fucking head kicked in, right? And I'm just like, this is going to go up. And I'm, the, the crowd was so fucking angry. I remember turning around. And this woman just kneed me in the nuts, right? And I was like, what did you do that for? And she's like, I don't know. I don't know. And then he got glassed. I think somebody from rugby actually got on stage and hit him with a bottle. <laughs> Those were the days. Those were the, were days. the fucking days. No but crash barriers. It was exciting. <laughs> no, because yeah, I think he had the ultra vixen. Zig Zig Sputnik, I think, had the female security detail. That's right. He's very glamorous, glamorous with the ultra vixens, but you know, it's Coventry, mate. It's fucking. (laughs) Yeah, I love Coventry. I was a bit rude about Coventry in my book, so I have to be nice about it. Yes, well, that's fine. Did you get into any of the kind of indie pop scene, like the Nightingales, or we've got a first box and we're going to use it, or any of those, or the Prefects, or any bands? Was that kind of on your orbit, or the two tone scene? 
Two-time stuff I loved because it was just unavoidable where we were from. And I remember going over to Wrighton, which is in the shadow, is a car car factory town in the shadow of Coventry and watching the people there fight while Ghost Town was being played. That's quite fighting. It's all violence, isn't it? In the Midlands, or it was back then. It was. It fucking was back then. So, yeah, the specials were, were I love the specials, you know. How could you not love Two Time? How could you not love it? Yeah. So, so yeah, Two Time and, re- and reggae, of course. I listened to a lot of reggae. I've been in Birmingham. I lived in Perry Bar in Birmingham. This would have been just after the Handsworth riots. Do you know, so I was living right on the edge of Handsworth, near to the Lozells Road, just around the corner from the Saddam Hussein Temple, <laughs> in a haunted house. <laughs> I didn't believe in ghosts. <laughs> and my Irish landlady said, that house is haunted, you're moving into. And I was just like, get away with your fucking superstitious nonsense. I don't believe in anything. At 17, I was so clever, I didn't believe in anything. And surely when I left that place, I believed in goats. And I also believed in three-day blues parties because you could hear, like, three-days blues parties, which were like reggae parties that have in Birmingham. you just hear bass line. I'd hear bass line for three days. Just a doom, yeah, all that Armageddon, all that Armageddon time bass line. So, I know. and then and then indie stuff. I mean, was I a huge indie fan? I'd kind of gone through that by pillaging my mate's brother's records, and he'd we'd got into a lot of the indie stuff through him and through John Peel. I used to enjoy that stuff. What's what were my favourites? And I kind of like the Redskins, do you know? I oh God, like yes, Bragg, stuff like neither that. Washington nor Moscow. We love that album. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like the Redskins because they had the kind of Northern Soul thing going on. So it was the Clash meets Motown, wasn't it? Let's face yeah, it. Yeah, it exactly, was. Yeah. It was just yeah. genius, fantastic yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, but then, yes. then and, yeah, go on. Sorry. I was going to say because then also because the eighties for me there was kind of and you probably realise yes you are one of those twiddly kids. I love the Smiths. Okay, from eighty three to okay. eighty seven, the Smiths were there and they were like my band. I suppose I thought they were just. Oh. I don't know why the Smiths didn't. The Smiths just never got to me. I, I can I listen to the songs and I go, it's a great song, but they just never grabbed me in the way that they grabbed some people. And I've got no idea why. I listen to those songs now and I'm like, yeah, that's a great song. That's, you know, some great songs, but they never got to me in the way that other people I know were consumed by the Smiths. Do you know? Yeah. I'm just going to go. And get, I'm just going to go and get my wine. One sec. Get your wine. Don't don't do anything about the wine. That's that's good. Sorry, it's very unprofessional. No, it keeps it real. I brought it with me. Yes, yes. Okay. So look, but the '80s. You mentioned reggae because I can remember you know going to the gigs at the UEA and there was always those kind of there was Sly and Robbie and the Taxi Gang. There was Misty and Roots. There was Burning Spear. There was Aswad, Gregory Isaacs. You know, it was just your the pulse. glory. Pardon. Steel Pulse, because I mean, I was in Hansworth. It was, it was a gorgeous, it was a glorious time for Roots Reggae, so it was quite good. good. Did you, on your, as you were fiddling around on your bass, did you, was there any particular bassist that you were trying to copy or um, channel? No, I was, yeah, Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix, Uh, to be honest, (laughs) by the time I'd been uh, relegated to bass guitar, and our, our band was kind of me, uh, Natty Brooker, who was the original drummer in Spaceman 3, and Steve Evans, my friend from school, who was also 
a, a, you know, a, one of that gang and Roscoe who played in Spaceman 3 and Darren Wisson who was a friend of mine and his brother played in a garage punk band that I later played in but we just used to play like one note you know we didn't really have any ambition we never, we never did any gigs so I didn't I don't know was I trying to be like anybody kind of Ron Ashton maybe out of the Stooges I kind of liked him but just yes. Simple. See, it was riffs, really, I liked, more than a particular bassist. I learned to appreciate the bass guitar as I played it, as yes. I got on with as I played it, as I got on with it, you know, and as I learned more about it. Because I don't think I was a particularly serious bassist, you know. I was, and I was working in another factory over there when I got my first paycheck and I was supposed to go and buy my first bass because I'd been borrowing a bass. And I went to the music shop and bought a banjo. So I turned up at the, at the at the next rehearsal with a banjo. And they were like, why have you got a fucking banjo? And I was like, you just fancied it, you know. So that's how serious I was about playing the bass. I bought a banjo. Do you know? Yes, well, you were probably a bit ahead of your time. So your first band that you are in were called The Cogs of Time. Was this the... No. That was kind of... I mean, the first band was this band who never had a name and we just used to rehearse quite frequently and uh, play one note a lot so we never really had a name so the first band never really had a name and never did any gigs is, does that, is it still a band if it doesn't do any gigs and never makes any recordings and doesn't have a name is that still a band it's a bit like when you were young and people used to try and describe what god was and they went it's a bit of a gas bit of a gas i guess it's more of a it's more of a concept isn't it really it's it's kind Probably of high band <laughs> It's pretty fucking low I found over the years. I have to say some of it. But anyway, being a band, it's fairly easy to. I would say it's quite easy to to describe, to define being in a band. Generally, if you're in a room with a few people making loads of noise, you're probably in a band. Yes. <laughs> if there's some drama, you're probably in a band. <laughs> if you're fucking broke. You're probably in a band. If you're eating crisps by the side of a motorway at four in the morning, you're probably in a band. I don't know. Maybe it is as difficult as defining God. Yeah. Well, I guess, no, but that's, I I guess, you know, without the name and, and any sort of evidence, but then, you know, you've got the memories and the good times with that, that first concept. So after that one, was your next band called The Cogs of Time? The Cogs of Time, yeah. The Cogs of Time, which was a, a garage punk band in, in rugby. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And did, and did that come together quite quickly? Um, they'd been playing for a while and I used to enjoy them. I used to go to the gigs. There was always the Reverberation Club, which was on in one of the local bars in the back room and the Cogs of Time and Spaceman 3 were kind of close associates and there was a gang of maybe, I don't know, 10 or 12 people with which I was loosely affiliated and they used to put on a club night there and play, you know, all the psychedelia, all the garage punk stuff, all the blues stuff, that kind of mishmash of stuff that... That everybody kind of knows now, I suppose. Yeah. So I, I was familiar with them, and then it it was so Gavin recruited me to play bass for them, and I did two gigs with them, two gigs, one in Birmingham at the Sensateria, and one in the back room of the Blitz. Then I was recruited out. Yes, you got the transfer, didn't you? I got, you got quickly recruited. Yes. Did you get headhunted? 
It would appear to be the car. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, they had hunted me. There wasn't much of a talent pool in rugby, I guess, for, for good-looking bassists. <laughs> so I got the job. No, I'm kidding. I don't know. There weren't that many of us who were into the kind of same sort of music in our town, I suppose, who, was, who were on the same page, roughly. You know, we'd all been listening to the similar sort of record. I mean, there was maybe 20 people that used to go to the Reverberation Club regularly, you know, and they were putting on gigs from gigs from bands from out of town, you know, from over in Northampton and play, you know. It was, yeah, I got I got headhunted. So, yeah, so what was, was it like? Because the band, the Spaceman 3, had been going for a bit. What was the dynamic? Yeah. What was it like stepping into a band with a bit of a, already got some history behind it? I'd known, I'd known all of them for, I don't know, how many years back by that point. You know, a while, two, three years, three, four, and we were all involved in kind of drugs and music, you know. And, uh what was it like? What was it? <laughs> I wrote a book about it. Uh, it was, you know, fairly daunting in some ways, but I was absolutely enthusiastic for playing music at that point and doing gigs, and I was just desperate to do it. So any opportunity to play, I was, I was going to take. I just really was in love with playing at that point. Yes. Had they got a record label by then? Had they? Were they yeah. on... Glo- yeah, yeah, they'd had two records. Two records had come out on glass already, and then, yeah, the next one was on fire. So they'd made two albums at that point, and I loved the band, you know, and I knew all of them, Pete Bain and Moscow and Jason. You know, it's a small town. Rugby's a small town. If you're, in, if you're interested in the kind of things that we're interested in, it's kind of hard not to trip over each other. Yes, my God, that's that's amazing. So, how did it? Because what was that period like? The late eighties, kind of musically. Because I know that things sort of shifted quite a lot, you know, towards that world of dance music when you know, ecstasy came along, and there was kind of the Happy Mondays and I don't know, Soup Dragons, Stone <laughs> Roses, the Orb. You know, was that? Did that sort of filter in? It did. We liked the Happy Mondays, you know. I remember listening to the first Stone Roses album because Pete Kemba at the time was making his first solo album on Silvertone, which was the Sil- which was the Stone Roses first. So I got I remember getting here and an advanced copy of that, an advanced cassette copy of the first Stone Roses album and being like, oh, this is going to change things. But we kind of lived in a bubble, really, a little bit. The acid house thing kind of passed us by. We were aware of it, you know, but never really into it. But I mean, by the time all that kicked in, we've been doing acid for like four years. Do you know what yes. I mean? The last, thing, the last thing you want to do is go stand in a field and do some more fucking acid, you know, <laughs> to, to a degree, even though I did, of course. But, you know, did, I think we'd already, we'd already earned our stripes by that point, I think. You yes. know, maybe, maybe. So, playing with fire, playing with fire was the album that you worked on with the band. First one, yeah, the first one I did for Spaceman Three was playing with fire. What was the process, you know, of putting it together? Process was uh, they'd rented a farmhouse down in Cornwall, outside St Austell, from uh, a bunch of hippies called Webcore. You know, Webcore, they were kind of like a Hawkwind traveller band. And they were, they say the house down there, and they're like, yeah, we've got 16, I think it was eight-track studio down there, wasn't it? So we, Jason and Pete were down there, and they were like, come on, I want you to help us make this record. And I was working at the time, weirdly, in a factory that made bolts for the space shuttle. So I think it was kind of a small 
leap to actually being in a band called Spaceman 3. Yes. So they drove me, I was driven down to Cornwall and then it was just, they'd laid down some backing tracks and we all kind of lived in this little farmhouse in the middle of nowhere and Jason would go back and Pete would come back and sometimes it would be all there and sometimes it'd be a couple of us. We just made the record, multi-tracked it all. Just it was all multi-track. There was no live stuff on that. There was no drummer. We had a French drummer briefly turned up, uh, did one gig, and then that didn't come to fruition. So the rest of that, yeah, there's there's no drummer on that album. Right. Did it feel like you had created something of a masterpiece at this stage? (sighs) A masterpiece? Oh, my God, no. When, when does, does that ever cross anybody's mind when they're making? I just wonder when you uh, played I've it back. Made, there was a, there was a, a moment when I was listening to the playback of Suicide when we when we, we laid the bass down and the drums were on it, and the very start of it made my balls tingle, and I was like, "Oh, I've never had that from a, a mu- from music before." And I took that as an auspicious sign like tingling balls. I've never had it since either, but if you ever get it, it's probably a good sign. Yes, I think it would. I've never had that experience myself. I'm not a doctor. (laughs) It wasn't unpleasant. It it was neither over pleasant nor unpleasant. It was just, it was unusual, remarkable. It was, yeah. I'm remarking about it to you now. So so I suppose if there was a moment, that was it, when my balls, balls tingled. So how, how how was the band managed? Did you have a manager or, or any sort of leadership? This, this leadership. Uh, did we have leadership? Define leadership. Well, somebody with a kind of a vision and who's able to sort of... Vision? Bring, yes. A managerial vision, an artistic Well, I suppose there's, there's, there's the manager, you know. I mean, I suppose some of the bands that we mentioned in the 80s who did go on to great things, they all, like, mm. I think the police had that guy, Miles Copeland, who had, a you know, a particular, right, we'll do this, this and this, and then we'll do this, mm. this, and then we'll just keep getting slightly bigger, more, you know, more money and things go well. Or, you know, Sting probably was very good on that front. I just wondered if if the if Spaceman 3 ever had that kind of, right, this is good, we'll, we'll hit this and then we'll do this. How did it work? I think, I think the, most of the ambition within that band was for the music. You know, it really, it, the idea in 1989 that you could be so fucking overtly druggy and be any kind of a fucking success. It was like, geez, when we used to turn up to do interviews, right? somebody would roll a joint and the interviewer would look at us like we were mad. It was so unusual, like before the Happy Mondays kind of normalised all that shit, like the baggy stuff and acid hours normalised it. We were like fucking freaks for that shit, pariahs. It was not cool. What we were fucking doing was not cool. So any idea of commercial success, we'd have fucking laughed at you. You know, ambitious for the music, obviously making records. You know, John Peel even trashed the record. He played like three records over the top of fucking roller coaster. You know, making disparaging comments about it. Even John Beale wasn't, you know. <laughs> so ambitious for the music. You know, Pete Gemba was a great driving force in that band. You know, he was, he was very motivated. But, you know, I don't think any of us ever thought we were going to be fucking rich. No. And what, and what was the dynamic? <laughs> Go on, sorry. I was going to say, did, were, were you in the band with Roscoe at that stage? Oh, Roscoe and Pete Bain were both out. I came in as they both left. 
Right. There you go. And then, because because with most bands that I do, and you know, have done interviews with, they have a bit of a five year narrative. They get together the twelve month honeymoon period. They get a single. John Peel plays it. They get a John Peel session. Then a couple of albums, and then it's all over. What was your story like with the uh, with with this first your first band with or your time with Spaceman Three? Well, my third gig, the third gig that I ever played was in Spaceman 3 with my bloody Valentine supporting us down at Dingwall. So, you know, I was shot out of a cannon <clears throat> into a fairly uh, psychedelic miasma of peculiarity pretty quickly, you know, and, and and arguably that was a band that had already, that was at its zenith if it hadn't already passed its peak. And, you know, certainly creatively those two were headed in a different ways, do you know what I mean? So, you know, I was in all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Great, I get to make a record, but, you know, they were they were in the autumn years of the band as I was, you know, a spring chicken. Yes. Did you all manage to sort of coordinate your drug-taking together or was it a little bit messy? Yes. No, we were very organised about it. The manager used to send us a schedule. He said, 10 o'clock, smoke some weed. 1 p.m. speedballs. Right. It was, it was, it was, no, they, no, he didn't. Gerald, he probably, he wouldn't see me. I think he'd see the funny side. No, were we coordinated? Um, no, probably not. Because Hawkwind no. had that problem, didn't they? They had several mm. members doing acid, some people doing speed, and it just didn't, it didn't work for them, did it? It was too, too many kind of different drugs going on. Did you manage to sort of have some sort of unison on, on the, on drug taking with the band? Was this video? I don't think I ever did acid with either of those two. I don't think I ever tripped with either Jason or Pete. Don't think so. Which is weird. Did I ever trip with either of them? Uh, did we just smoke a lot of hash, really? Do you know, and a little bit of this and a little bit of that on the choir, and then do you know, they, they weren't you know wildly enamoured with people taking amphetamines. So, so you know, it's mostly just hash, to be fair, for me. Yes. You know, and a little, a little dabble in the. The other things that yes. are so well documented, <laughs> you know. So, but, but it, I mean, basically, the synchronicity of of would be largely to do with availability. So, you know, if we were broke, you know, nobody wants to share their drugs all the time, do they? No. And was Gerald the manager? Yes, he was. And did he? And was he an inspiration, or did he sort of navigate the band? <laughs> He inspired me later in the band. Certainly inspired me. I wouldn't like to say to what, but he was certainly an inspiration. I mean, he was he was adequate as a driving force for the band. You know, I guess he did some good deals for himself and for the band because the band did all right. But, you know, I've got to say, Joe goes a lot of shit, but I tell you, this is a funny fucking story. I've been in how many bands? <clears throat> I don't know, 35 maybe, 35 bands maybe, totally. And the only person that I ever get royalties from, that I've ever received royalties from, is Gerald Palmer, weirdly. Not very much, but he's the only one. So, you know, I don't know. What does that tell you? Yeah. I never did no deals. I never signed no deals. Do you know, I never signed no deals with anybody. Fuck that. <laughs> Gerald, man, I mean, me and him bodied heads quite considerably, you know, during during the time that 
towards the end of that band, me and Gerald butted heads. I, I took offence to, uh, <laughs> to some of his accounts. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he didn't really like that. Shouldn't be talking about it. Do you know what? I swore blind I was never going to talk about this shit again. Do you know what I was like? The, book, the book's written. I'm not fucking talking about it. I'm fucking sick of it. It's been 30 yes. years. Everybody knows. What I've got to say that's any that's any different it just always creates trouble this band is like so fraught with like politics and aggro it was just like always fucking mad i've never been in another band that's quite so fucking aggro which i kind of like about it it was so, yes. so dysfunctional do you know it's a band that could without fail shoot itself in the nuts do you know what i mean and, and I think it's still the case now, which I like about it. You know, it's yeah. one of the things I find endearing. It was one of the things that drives me the craziest about it. Good times. Good times. <laughs> so, so, okay then. So then as, as we sort of step into a new decade, you, you sort which of part decade? the nineties, the nineties oh. appears. We have the John Major years, don't we? Thatcher okay, yeah, leaves. Yeah. So yes, you, yes. you leave Spaceman 3. Is yeah. that... I mean, was that inevitable? It was at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Or it would appear to have been the case that it was inevitable because it fucking happened. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, I just had enough, really. After a kind of, we made, I don't know, did a lot of touring, made a couple of records, and then I was just tired and uh, broke. (laughs) And I just fucked it off, left uh, kind of, as recurring was being made and went to work on a building side to pay off my debts. So, yeah. Yes. But then you, you're back into spiritualized. I was, yes. I went back into spiritualized. Yeah. And was, uh, what was that experience like? <laughs> Do you want, would you, would you like a haiku? Can, would you like me to condense it into oh, yes. syllables? Oh, I, I, I was going to say 16, but 14. <laughs> is, it six, I think, is it 14? I don't know. It's 14 yeah, or 16. Not. It's an I'm even not. number. Yeah, so, so how long does that last? Like it's spiritualized lasted about a year and a half, a year, year and a half, I guess. So May later got a melody. Did a lot of touring, started out again, kind of uh, doing the smaller gigs and touring in a little van. But it was nice. It was nice to make music. You know, it was it was less stressful in some ways. Yeah. And what was and what was the album and and recording sessions like? What were they like? What were the recording sessions like? Yes, um, they were they were actually very pleasant. The music was good. I was enjoying playing. I had uh, a little more. Free. It was a little less of the rigid minimalism of Basement Three, and I'm not. And I'm not saying that disparagingly at all. But it was a little more, uh, a little more florid, <laughs> spiritualized, <laughs> <laughs> a little more curlicued. So uh, I don't know what was it like. I was enjoying. I was enjoying playing, and we were a good band. You know, Johnny's great drummer. I loved playing with Johnny, and you know, we were. Uh, we were kind of experimenting, really, a bit. Which in the early days, it felt a bit more experimental. Like we were just like, okay, there's no hard and fast rules to how we sound. Do you know, there weren't any. There wasn't any of that which had kind of been set with Spaceman Three. It's like, okay, this is a live set. And this is the sound. I mean, on record, it was different with Spaceman Three, but 
certainly translating that to the live arena was difficult. It was hard to do the quiet stuff, do you know. In a, in a small pub, nobody wanted to sit and listen to quiet songs. There, you just had to be like, "Okay, plug it in and turn it up and fuck you off," you know. So we spiritualised. We kind of were more experimental, really, at the start, and it was nice. You know, I enjoyed making that record. So this is Laser Guided Melodies, which was on Dedicated Records. Dedicated Records, exactly. Yeah, it all went well. But then you do you sort of leave, or do you just? I don't know. What happens with the band on that front? I just left. I had a quick glimpse into the future and decided that I might like a different future. So I just went for a little walk. Yes. So did you go did you go into the wilderness to sort of have some biblical kind of experience, or did you just kind of have enough of the music industry at this stage? I don't know. I'd got sick of playing somehow. Which was it was kind of a horrible thing because I'd loved playing so I mean, I got I just I started to confuse um, playing music with the business of playing music, you know, and uh, it just was no longer a joy to me. So I, I fucked off, you know. Yes, and yeah, that was all. I was still living next door to Jason, you know. So. And then the record hadn't come out, but I just, I don't know, fancied a change, you know. I had you know, a short attention span, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so after that, so during that four years, did you sort of listen to music at all, or did you just kind of... Yeah, yeah I listened to music. I listened to music a lot. But, and I had a little four track. I cut that around. I mean, I kind of got... It was all the time the poll tax thing, so that kind of went tits up, and then I kind of... <laughs> I kind of had the bailiffs after me for a while. So, you know, it wasn't, it was less, um, it was less a biblical experience unless there's anything in the Bible about people being pursued by bailiffs. I don't know, I'm not a great student. I'm not a great student of the fucking, but were there any tax clicks? Were there there any debtors? I don't know. I suppose there were debtors, weren't there, in some some way. There must have been debt collectors kind of appearing somewhere down the line. But my memory of the the, the story is a bit, bit, bit hazy. I'd have to listen to something by... Andrew Lloyd Webber to sort of catch up with a few kind of basic things that happened in his lifetime. But um, cats, cats, cats. cats. <laughs> Are they cats in the Bible? <laughs> no, they don't get I mentioned. Mean, it's, it's, Donkey, donkeys get mentioned, but not cats. I think we were on a different musical. I think Jesus Christ Superstar was my go-to more than the one about cats. There's only one musical, really. There's only one band, isn't there? To test your idea of the, I went into the wilderness for a, for a biblical. A biblical vision. Then I had a vision. Did you? Yeah, I had a vision of the fucking bailiffs kicking down my door and taking all my shit. So I fucking left before they could do it. <laughs> well, that's yeah. I thought yeah. So I hadn't forgot about the poll tax, but I always associate it with much more the early nineties, like ninety one, ninety two, than than the sort of mid nineties. Yeah. So um, it was that, but then it kicked in. You see, so I kind of like, I'm like, fuck you, I'm not paying it. And then they'd said, well, if you don't pay it, we're going to kick your door in. And then I'd kind of come to an agreement to give them, I don't know, one euro a week of the debt I owed them. And then I defaulted on that. And because you, if you default on your debt, that's when they can kick your door down. Have you ever had the bailiffs around? Jesus. you ever had the bailiffs around? No, I never had the bailiffs experience. I remember sort never. of trying ne- to avoid... 
door kicked down. Thankfully, that's... It's, it's, it's a good thing to avoid getting your door kicked out. We had a door done once, like by the bailiffs for the gas. That was that was quite disturbing. It's quite it's quite experienced to it, it's quite the sound to hear your own front door being crowbarred at like six o'clock in the morning. I, I recommend it to anybody. And then and then you they just go in and shut everything off. I mean, I guess it there's gonna be a lot of that, isn't there now? Because I mean fuel prices are going through the fucking roof, aren't they? Yes, I guess that we might be reliving those times. I did watch um, Ted Heath from 1973 doing one. He addressed the the nation in the winter saying, I'm sorry, but it's all gone a bit tits up and we're not going to have a very good Christmas. And it's just yeah. a, kind of one of those great speeches that you've one had forgot about. It was only 50 years ago when we thought that was way behind us. But you're right, I think it will all go fucking tits up this uh, this winter, really, if, if um, it goes up. Like eighty percent, I don't think will survive. So, um, I just can't see how people. I just can't see how people will. I mean, I was I was recently just doing. Do not. I was, I was washing dishes recently, and it's like okay, it's minimum wage, and a lot of people there who were doing them jobs through the pandemic. I might add, do you know? Because hey, <laughs> somebody's got to have the dinner, right? I find them heroic people that worked in like food shops i found him heroic during the pandemic i'm just like look at this motherfucker completely braving this virus to bring me my fucking pizza do you know what i mean I'm, it's like it's not about that really it's just about there's nothing else to do and if you don't do it he's not going to get any pizza do you know it's just not is that heroic i don't know i found it heroic that's how stupid that's my romantic vision it was so what I ended up washing dishes, right? So I'm washing, washing fucking dishes. I'm talking to people there. They're just like, yeah, they're just about scraping by. They're just about paying a rent. And then it's like, okay, when you're just about scraping by, and then all of a sudden your fuel goes 10% more expensive, and your and your your groceries are 10% more expensive. You don't have you don't have any uh, don't have any buffer there. Do you know what I mean? So if those people's fucking bills are doubling, it's how the fuck are you going to survive? Yes, I know. I don't. I don't think. Um, I don't think Liz Trust has got much for plan, really, apart from to tell us either to get or on the a, bus or a personality. It seems. <laughs> yeah, I know. She, she, she seems to be. She seems to be a person without a functioning personality. To me, you know, it's almost there, but it's been programmed so hard that the bit of Liz Trust that was her that isn't just like some gr- grotesque malignant ambition, and you know. An Adele playlist or whatever. <laughs> well, I think um, yes, I know because she does. She does. She's been programmed to say this key phrase, which is something about turbocharging the economy, lowering tax. I love it. I love the turbocharging thing. I, I need do. to turbocharge my economy. I need I know. to turbocharge. Are you turbocharging anything at the moment? I don't, I'm do not at the moment. I, I, don't, I don't feel particularly turbocharging, but I don't. I don't feel that confident when she promises quite so many things when she hasn't read the papers. I think she's a bit. It's a bit tricky, isn't it? They're fucking Top Gear, isn't it? Turbocharge. Yeah, we're going to turbocharge it. What does it mean? Does anybody yes. know? Does anybody know what it actually means? I think we're going. We're going to. We're going to attract investment. Um, trade with all these other people outside Brexit because we got Brexit done and that was yeah. a massive success. And, Odd for and, that, yeah. And, and lower taxes, and it's all going to be and get rid of red tape. Get, get rid, rid of, of that. Do you know what I love about that phrase? We're going to get rid of red tape, and what it sounds like is that you're opening 
a delightful supermarket. It's like you're opening a co-op in a picturesque village. But what you're actually doing is cutting the red tape and allowing a big truck to trundle through and dump shit in your river because the EU isn't going to fucking stop it anymore. Isn't yeah. it great? But I love the sound of it. Cut the red tape. It's just like I pronounce this co-op open, but it's just like fuck your seas, <laughs> fuck your seas. Rivers. I've got a nice, I've got a nice house in fucking Provence. <laughs> I must admit, I haven't, I haven't met a lot of musicians trying to tour Europe thinking that cutting the cutting of red tape. It seems to have increased the red tape somehow for the musicians trying to do do Europe. Yeah, what know. the fuck? What happened to that guy? It's just been all of a sudden it's like a big bundle of red tape and it's been wrapped around your neck and everybody's like, oh well. At least you got some sovereignty. I didn't talk about this stuff really. I st- I'd stopped talking about it because it was so uh, controversial. It got so controversial, and it was just like I spent all my time arguing on Facebook, which I felt was wasn't really the best way to spend no, my life. But my it's aut- not, my it's autumn a, years. But it's not really controversial. The fact that everyone who's a musician or band has just said, "Well, the red tape that has theoretically gone has just increased," but without yeah, it's added- a fucking nightmare. <laughs> it's a fucking nightmare. <laughs> it's a, it's a, you know, I, just, I hope somebody's enjoying it somewhere. That's all. I'm just yes. like really hoping somebody's enjoying it because I'm not, and yes. not many of my friends are either. It's, it's going to make life. It's going to make a really difficult job even more fucking difficult for a lot of bands in the UK. And I think it's it's a pity, do you know. And I don't. But they, did they think about anything? You know, did they fucking give a fuck about anybody except for you know their tax avoiding mates? You know what I mean? And avoiding the European anti-money laundering laws, which came in on the 1st of January, coincidentally. Oh, is it a coincidence? No, I don't think it fucking well is. But, you know, they didn't write about that in the song, did they, following off? No. I didn't didn't see much coverage of that. I was supposed to be fucking absolutely riddled with fear at the idea of some poor fucking refugee crossing the channel on a blow-up boat and a Polish nurse, right? I'm like, mate... They're not making the fucking laws. The reason you're in this shit, right, is not some poor fucking Syrian crossing the channel in a blow-up boat and a Polish nurse. They're not making your fucking laws. But, you know, sovereignty, what does it mean? Does anybody know? No. But I think no. Boris, but Boris did say we were going to reintroduce having was it, old measures back, like the pine. But I didn't realise oh, the pine had been rem- removed. So you didn't even know it had gone. We didn't even know it had gone. That's it. That's creeping, like, anti-Britishness. That's what that is. You didn't even realise you'd lost it, that great pillar of culture. I had a pint glass. I had a pint before Brexit. I'm sure I had one. You never asked for a litre, did you? You just went, can I have a pint? Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel now. <laughs> I was in Belfast. It's funny because I've been in Ireland. I was in Ireland a fair bit recently and I was living in Belfast because of culture I was like involved with this arts organisation in Donegal County Donegal now doing readings for the book I've completely destroyed your timeline for questioning you had such a nice timeline I've derailed it out of my story and then so I was in Belfast right and I was never been to Belfast and they're like do you want to come and DJ in Belfast right and I'm like oh my god in Donegal only ever heard about Belfast on the TV when it was bad news, do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So there's like that weird kind of 80s me, just like, oh. And I went up there and I stayed for like fucking three months. I was only supposed to be there a night. It was great. But, you know, talking, being on that border and hearing 
the his some of the history there, and then thinking, geez, anything that would put that into jeopardy, that fragile piece into jeopardy. I'm just like, what the fuck? Do you know what I mean? And people there were just in disbelief. They're just in disbelief, a lot of them. You know, my friends, and they're not overtly political people, a lot of these fucking musicians, normal people like everybody else. It's like, what the fuck? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I remember that. I don't, I'm not that great on that history, but I do remember watching a documentary, which doesn't sound great, but I do remember there was one of those kind of bands, you know, like who were crossing the border and they Mm. just got sort of pulled over and all shot because of that. And they they were just, they weren't like a rock band. They were just kind of one of those. Is that a Stephen Travers? They're one of the club bands, eh? The club bands. That's a Stephen Travers book that was, was, uh... yeah, yeah, it's a shocking fucking story, that is. Shocking story. That is not, no, it's not yeah. a good story, is it? That does, that, that brings. It's just frightening, you know. I mean, you hear the stories up there. It's like, that wasn't the reason I was there, you know. They're keen to move past that. And, you know, there's a good, really good art scene up there, really good music scene. People are really committed, really decent. I met a lot of really decent folks up there, I have to say. Yes. With, a, with a wicked piss taken sense of humor, they'll all be taking the fucking piss out of me if they hear this. Do you know, like, yeah, you think you know it all now, don't you? You know <laughs> nothing, you fucking English cunt. I was like, I'm mainly Welsh. I was like, I'm not English, I'm mainly Welsh. You know, <laughs> they're like, yeah, you sound it. Like, <laughs> but you know, I don't know. It's just, just, I don't know. I hate to bang on about it because it's, you know, Brexit has been, it's been done now, isn't it? So what's the point of fucking crying? Yeah. It's just done, isn't it? Gotta just eat it, suck it up, get that big piece of shit on a spoon and just suck it all up. <laughs> well, should we talk about music again? Yeah, so look, then we had the John Major years going towards dear old <laughs> Team Tony, let's keep it political. Then you get a phone call back from your old mate Gavin, didn't you, to go back into another band? Yes, because I'd been I'd been uh, hitchhiking around the country and generally um, caves and small buildings. And, yeah, Gavin was like, do you want to come and play again? Because I was busking with him. He actually got me back into playing music. By He had a T-chest bass, so he convinced me to play the T-chest bass. So he would go busking in Rugby Town Centre and I'd play a T-chest bass and he'd play the guitar and we'd do, like... Uh, psychedelic classics <laughs> busking psychedelic classics on a teacher's bass and acoustic and his electric guitar so what do we do summertime is here kiddies and it's time to take a trip we do we busk these like weird psychedelic songs excellent i think by diddly songs which didn't really go down well with most of the people going past we didn't make much money i remember coming coming off one session playing teachers gives you nasty blisters like it's fucking hard work I think we had about two quid and some kids threw some biscuits at us that was that was the limit of the rewards for that two hours but it was good fun because we enjoyed the songs so yes. anyway Gavin did that and then he's like come and play in the guaranteed ugly he tried he got me into the guaranteed ugly and then we went and did some gigs they had a record deal with um hangman which is billy childish's label and the head coats and damaged goods and all that stuff. So we'd go down and play with the head coach because Billy Childish loved the guaranteed ugly, weirdly. So we were playing down in London with them once a month for about a year, a year and a half, supporting the head coats and the head coaches. And I'm just shame she used to play down there. And 
who else used to play? Um, Solar Flares, and who else? I'm going to forget some people and get in trouble. Sexton Ming, right? And, oh, Mark Perry from ATV would come down, do a turn, he'd do action time and vision with the head coats. Mickey from the Milkshakes was always there, and it was a generally hilarious time. About '97, I guess that was just before Jack White and the White Stripes got involved with all that and all the tie rag thing. But they were fucking brilliant gigs. They're some of the the, the most fun gigs I was in. We used to play first, so he played first, and then it'd be um, his shanks and the head coats and the head coatees would come on after them. So they were just brilliant nights, really, really interesting, unusual nights, you know. Yes, was that a musical highlight during that period? Yeah, they would, it was just one of those. It was one of those moments when that scene was great. You know, it was like there was moments when the space and stuff was great. There's moments when spiritualized stuff was great, and it's they're not they don't they don't stay at the. Oh, I don't want to say the peak because they change and they have peaks and troughs. But there's there's a moment when it's like not. It's I don't know. There's moments when things are fucking great. You know what I mean? For me personally, I don't know. And yes. It's just, it's, I like I like them when they're odd, when they're quite when they're ill, when they're not quite defined, maybe. Do you know when something's not been ex- <laughs> there hasn't been an accepted definition. I like things when they're kind of for, forming in a way. I don't know. They were great, great nights, and it was just good fun dancing and good, the bands were fucking great and the vibe was great and it was a really a fun year down there with that lot they're a good bunch you know well it's always good Ollie, to have uh, a, a zeitgeist moment really isn't it it's good to have a few i think Do you know if you, if you can fit them in if you can fit them in <laughs> if you can catch the waves you know if you can stand the hangovers you do all right <laughs> they, were, they, were fucking, they were fucking great noise obviously so it was like kira and holly go lightly down there and you know they were fucking great they were really good fun gigs. Really, and this is the dirty. And this is the dirty water club, club right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Really good, though. really good night. How did that putter out? I don't know. For me personally, I think I just what happened. Did it putter out? No, it kept going. I mean, it kept going. It, it got bigger, didn't it? I mean, it, there was the white stripes, and then they started recording it. Toe rag, so you know Billy Charles now obviously is a fairly big name, and he kept they kept going, but I just left, I just left the guaranteed ugly. I went off with Spectrum again, right? For another, funny, I tell you a funny story. I tell you a funny fucking story though about one of them head coach kids. Right? I was I'd been at a road protest down in Laminge in Kent. Right? So we, I was living in a treehouse trying to stop the developers <laughs> chopping the fucking forest down, right? So I was down there and I hitchhiked back to London to do a gig with uh, Guaranteed Ugly, right? So I'm hitchhiking back from Laminge to get in. And I arrived at the venue before the band, right? So I get in and, and Billy Childish is there. And I was like, fuck now, I bought a copy of The Big Issue. Right, on the way up, and it was there was an interview in there with uh, Tracy Eamon. Right, this is my claim to fame now. It's becoming my claim to fame. So there was, there was an interview with Tracy Eamon, and it was her tent, right? And it had his name. And saying she wasn't very well known at the time, and I was like, "Check this out, Billy. Your fucking name's in the, in her tent." And he went, "Fucking hell, Tracy." So I like to think that that was my little. That was probably my major cultural influence. Telling yes. Billy that. Tracy put him put his name in her tent. I mean, do I get any credit for it? No, 
God, I know. It's just, I know. It's, tra- it's tragic. It's tragic. It is. A, it's tra- it is sad, actually. We'll have to write a song about it. So then what's no. Spectrum like? What What are Spectrum like? What were they like? What were, was it like? What was it like for you? Well, I've been doing the Guaranteed Doggy thing, and then Pete was like, do you want to come on tour in America? Right. And I'm like, ooh, that sounds exciting and glamorous, and I'm probably forgotten how difficult it's going to be so yeah i should do it i'll probably do it and then it was like it's not too many dates no 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 and then it was like six weeks around america so then we're touring a forever alien which is a fairly uh, uncompromising uh, kind of electronic album which is perhaps not what some of the audience were expecting over there so we're kind of playing this baffling electronica to baffled crowds sometimes i mean i, I really like those the set, I like, I like the set. There's, there's one on YouTube, Live at the Black Cat, which is pretty good, you know, if you're if you're interested. But the Forever Alien stuff's fairly. We did a couple of Spaceman songs, but it was it was fascinating, you know, to drive all the way around America. Yes, six weeks. That is pretty hard going. The fairly long tour, yeah, it was. And he was and collecting speak speaking spells at the time, as I recall. Blimey, Jesus Christ. Did you, because most most people break up from bands after the tour in America. What was it like when you came back from that experience? A job at a nursery packing blackthorn trees, blackthorn saplings. Have you ever packed a blackthorn sapling? No. They're terrible. You get these little pricks in you and they go fucking septic, septic pricks. Yeah, it's bad. I've, I've, packed, ro- I've packed roses for a couple of probably Similar, very similar. In, in a sort of nursery. It. And uh, it. it was an evening job. I needed a bit mm. more cash, and uh, I did it with some very strange people who had been there for decades. And I was thinking, oh, this is awful. You know, that was kind of, yeah, you don't want to go back there, do you? No, what was fascinating about that job, it was around a time when, uh, do you remember the BSE thing? Yes, the, the, the mad cow thing, and they were <laughs> just like, "What are they doing with these mad cows and their indestructible prions?" And they were sticking them in, they were burning them down the cement factory. Actually, in rugby, I heard. And I want to disturb any of your listeners, but um, yeah. And then we were working that job with the, with the blackthorns, and there were these sacks, these unmarked sacks of vile smelling kind of fertiliser arrives. And I say to my boss, I was like, what the fuck needs sacks? I was like, why, why, why do they smell so bad? He was like, I'm just like, this is those fucking mad cows, isn't he? He looked at me horrified. I'm just like, so I have a theory. So we just spread the mad cows on the roses. <laughs> probably completely un, probably completely unfounded. I had, a, I had Randall, Randall from a band called Fuchsia in America. He was in rugby briefly and he wanted me to lay a baseline down for him around this time. I had a little eight-track recorder. So he came around the house and we laying the baseline and I was like, do you know where the power is coming from to drive this machine? And he's like, no. And I was like, they're burning cows. He was like, what the fuck? And I was like, yeah, cow power. Cow power, <laughs> Randall. That's where, everything, that's where everything works on in Britain. Diseased cow power. Uh, so, yeah, we still talk about that, man. I don't blame Sorry, you. Sorry, anyway. God, that's, that, that's quite something, isn't it? Yeah, so after the so after the Blackthorn years in the nursery, what what's your next? Six months. Six months. <laughs> my, next, my next career move. What was yes. my next car- career? Um, what was it? 
Oh, that's a good question. Was it around 97, 98? Uh, maybe Solo album, I think, around then. I think I made, did I make it after that or before? I can't remember. I was crashed into, got some compensation. Um, I bought a little eight track, made solo records, put that out myself, built a website, put them in the post. Um, did you collaborate with the, the Flowers of Hell? Yes. I played, I played with the Flowers of Hell. And I did a live show with them as well in uh, Austin Sightfest, yeah. Yes. What was that experience like? Um, it was great. It was good. He just asked me to come down and put a bass line down. And I was in London and he was he was one of his partners. His partner at the time was in a band called the Priscilla's. So I was hanging out with the Priscilla's, which was really good fun down in London. We turfed somebody's car, as I recall. I wouldn't like to give you the details about that, but we definitely turfed somebody's car. And then Greg was like, will you come and give me a bass line? So I was like, of course, Greg. So I turned up, brutally hung over. He pulled a bit enough for my hands to stop shaking and I played some bass lines for him. And there we are. That's, that's how that happened. Fantastic. Yeah. What a band. They are amazing, yeah. I have to say. Yeah, really... yeah. yeah, good band. I, play, I played with them as well in, in uh, Austin at Psychfest over there. Which was really a funny one. That was really because I wanted to see the elevators. Right. And I was, I was, I was at a particular low point in my life. I was looking at, at the internet, thinking, "Is there anything I want in any of this?" And it was like, "Holy fuck!" The thirteenth floor elevators playing. How am I going to get to Austin? There's no way. I know I've got no money. No way I'm going to get there. And then, literally, synchronistically. And Greg Shaw was like, is there any bass players in Austin? And I was like, I'll fucking do it, Greg. I'll play bass for you at that gig, but you got to get me a ticket. And he was just like, oh, there's no budget. So he did. Fair play to him. He stomped the ticket. So I flew to fucking Austin. <laughs> it was pretty funny because I turned up, I had no money. I just had like five handmade books. And I was like, if I can sell, if I can sell my handmade books. I can probably eat. Right, I'm going to do this gig, but I want to see the 13th floor elevators. I was determined. Right? I turned up a fucking custom. Right? I've got my five handmade books in a bag. And a guy at customs like, hey, Sherlock, because I had my Sherlock Holmes on, who's like, what's in the bag? It's just like, books, which is not strictly legal, because I mean, I wasn't really, I was swapping them for, for a bed. Is that, is that the commerce? Is that arguably fucking is barter commerce? Not really. So he's looking through him, he's opening the books, and I was like, fuck's sake, don't read the story about me smoking crack with a prostitute. Do you know what I mean? With Anna Mother, I like, in my defense, it was entirely innocent. I was just yes. smoking crack with her, Anna Mother. Anna Mother, probably fiction. It's all fucking fiction. The only thing real is hallucinations. Anyway, sorry, where were we? <laughs> one, one. You, you I, like, I digress. Yeah, so you were you were trying to sort of navigate the the, the uh, customs chap. Yes, you? yeah. With and your they five books with my five handmade books. In the end, I was like trying to put him off reading the story, the the incriminating stories by nudging him. And then he was like, "Okay, on you go." And then as I walked off, <laughs> one of the other customs agent went, "Where's your pipe?" And I was immediately thinking crack pipe because I'd been thinking about him not reading the story about the prostitute. And I was like, pipe? And he went, yeah, your pipe, you know, your bendy pipe, Sherlock. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> See, we were on a different page. We were on a different page at that point. 
Anyway, you, you were in you were in that sort of film, weren't you? Um, oh God, the one in Turkey, Midnight Express, weren't you? you Midnight, no, no, thankfully not. Thankfully, I've not. <laughs> I've been luckier than that. So, um, it's the Sherlock Holmes hat, I think. But yes, but there was that scene where he's he's at the airport, and I think someone shouts, and he's he's so wired up. He's, he's yeah, yeah, no, it's just like, I, mean, I think I've got a guilty demeanour anyway. I feel I just feel guilty most of the time. I think it's probably I don't know why do you think that is. Um, I don't is, know. It because, is it because I don't know? And is that thing? It's like drugs make you paranoid, isn't it? That's what they say. Drugs make you paranoid. That's what they always told us. Drugs will make you paranoid. It's like actually, I was probably more paranoid because we, we would all of a sudden like lawbreakers. Do you know what I mean? Yes. All of a sudden, the police are actually after you. Do you know what I mean? You are breaking the law all the time. You go from being law fairly law abiding. You know, I might have, you know, infringed on a few road road bylaws on my BMX to being like a full on fucking law. Yes, inadvertently, inadvertent. That's all I thought. So then, anyway, go on. Where were we? Yeah, so so I so chronologically from there with with the flowers of hell and your solo work, you end up with the Brian Jonestown massacre. How does how does how does this one sort of come together? Oh yeah, how does that one come together? There's all sorts of links and other ones in there that kind of link it together. But Ricky, Ricky from the Jonestown, who'd been uh, who'd really, who'd enjoyed Spaceman 3 and had come to rugby early on and was kind of friends with Pete Kemburn who had met on the Spectrum tours in uh, in America was a friend of mine. We, we remained friends and he was like, do you want to come? And I was living in my friend's garage. This all sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? It's so hard to like link it all along. There's a, you've, lived, my, you've lived in a lot of places, haven't you? Yeah, I really have. Yeah, I've, I've moved. I think I've moved. I don't know. I think I've moved about twenty-five times in the last five years. Yes. Is, is this a slightly more settled setup you've got now? No. <laughs> more settled than what? You know, if if I told you this, I you know I only I like to tell people where I was, and I like to tell people where I am these days because people have an an unhealthy obsession with where you are. I find. Yeah, no, that's that's not a good one, is it really? But yes, but that's, just, but, but you do manage to move it. around with quite sort of ease, fluidity, which is quite extraordinary. It is extraordinary. I have no idea how I do it. I just no idea. I mean, what I'm doing now, I'm just like doing a bit of construction. You know, get a few skills. That's my advice. The more skills you have, the more kind of transferable you are. As you talk about transferable skills, but I think it's important to be a transferable person. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I can I can cook. You know, I can you know, I can do a bit of drywall for you. I can do a bit of plastering if, if necessary. And as as a result of living such a kind of chaotic life, in which I've had to adapt, you you pick up skills that make you more adapted for that chaotic life. You know, if, you, if you're lucky, you don't fucking die or get eaten by a bear something yes well that's absolutely that, that, that's um, but then but then you know there is, that is quite a skill just to keep um keep going and and to not let it grind you down how do you ever sort of get down with the you know the lifestyle that you've lived i um 
I think I have moments of profound despair. But I've always had them. It doesn't matter what I'm fucking doing. I can have them. It can be the nicest day and I can have a moment of profound despair. Do I, you know, occasionally I think, yeah, maybe looking at my autumn years and <laughs> perhaps I could have I could have I could have planned for them a little more thoroughly but you know what in some ways I think maybe my skills are a greater insurance than what other people might be cons- considered to be safety I mean you know where's security where does security lie where does it really lie in you in, in you in yes. the things you own, you know, in clean fucking water, in your ability to fucking, I don't know, get across a mountain safely, you know. I don't know. You know, it changes, doesn't it? It's, it's interesting. You talk to people and it's, life can change. And I don't know. Yeah, I do regret it. Sometimes I wish I had a house. It would be nice to have slept in, in a place that I owned. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes I think, I wonder what that feels like. Because, yeah, you know, I've never experienced that. If you're like, oh, this is mine. But then, you know. I've got a fucking tent. <laughs> That's good, and and with it, with, with with the cost of living crisis, you might have more skills than the average person. Well, you will have, won't you? The survivability could be could know. be key for this next winter. I think this is it, really. So I look, really, I really I really don't know, but you know, they just I don't know. But do I regret things? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, I do regret something. And good life be easier, but I'm. But it ain't too bad, do you know what I mean? It's it's ridiculous and it's hard sometimes, but it's essentially satisfying to me. I think the world would be an awful place if everybody lived like I do. But then probably, you know, if we're all the fucking same, it'd be an awful place, whoever. Yes. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. So what was the, because you did two albums with the Jonestown Massacre, didn't you? Yeah. What was yeah, that sorry. experience sorry. like for you? <laughs> You're asking me to, to encapsulate uh, worlds in um, in a sentence, which I is know. difficult. And what was it like? What was it like? Did, working with the Jonestown was good. I was I was living in my friend's garage, wasn't I? Let me Ooh. take us back to the thread. I was living in my friend's garage, and then I got the call saying, "Do you want to support the Jonestown?" So I was doing my little solo. I don't think I made my second album. I made that in an abandoned office block in Leicester. <laughs> So I made that album and then I was living in a garage in Toronto and I got the offer to go and support the Brian Jonestown Massacre with my acoustic guitar, which I did. You know, And it was around the time just after dig, so they had a fairly boisterous audience and I was on the bus with them and I got on well with them and I got on well with Anton and uh, that was all good. The tour went well and then afterwards their bass player was getting married and they needed somebody to fill in because they wanted to tour. So they offered me the job. So I toured with them. I did like a six-week tour around Europe and off to America with them. So that would have been around, what year was that? I thought 2006, 2007, 2008, around then. And then, yeah. And then that finished. I did the quick, the quick tour. And then Anton was like, come to Berlin and make a record with me. You know, help me make a record. So I went over there and he was working on at the time he was finishing up who killed sergeant pepper and i was working at the funk house which is an old east german 
recording facility on the edge of Berlin, which at the time was largely abandoned. So me and him kind of used to roam the corridors and it was just me and him really, you know, just in a studio all fucking night for, for weeks. Just, I didn't do much, to be honest. He just does it. I'm just kind of moral support, you know what I mean? It's like fucking whatever. You know, he's like, right, lay the bass, lay the thing. It's like, whatever. You know, it's like it takes me fucking three days to put a bass line down, do you know what I mean? Those, those bass lines for Lady Guy of Melodies, I'd sit there and work out for two fucking days, you know? And he wants it done in 10 minutes. So I work very differently. It was good working with him. I enjoyed it, you know? It was, it was an interesting and uh, occasionally challenging time. And you know, yeah, yeah, yes. it was interesting. So, what it was, was the, you? You did the album "Who Killed Sergeant Pepper." What was the other album you yeah. worked on? Alf Haven. Some of the stuff I played on was on Alf Haven. So, yeah, do you know that one? Alf Alf Haven was the album after "Who Killed Sergeant Pepper." Sure, I've got you. I've got you. But before that, you were in your your solo work was called "Free Love Babies," wasn't it? Free Love Babies, I've made two albums with that. So I just made the second album in the abandoned office block in Leicester. <laughs> and then I'd moved to Toronto. Um, I was living in the garage, and then I got the call to go and be in the support of Jonestown. It all sounds very glamorous, doesn't it? So how Does did it you sound get, glamorous? How did I'm, you I'm get intrigued. a well? Just amazed that how did you get a call to say let's go to let just go to Toronto and and live here? What was the because uh, well, my mate Davey live? I'd been touring when I'd been touring with Spectrum. I'd met Davey, and Davey was a promoter in Toronto, and I'd been living in Rugby for a while. And things got a bit shitty, and I was like, oh, I don't know what to do. And Davey's like, come to Toronto, stay with me. I've got a spare room. Bang, it'd be brilliant. So I just kind of fucking moved over there with very little. <laughs> well, my dad was like, okay, this will be fine. You know, fingers crossed, let's go for it. And then, yeah, I went there and then I went back to Britain and then I made the album and then I went back to live in his garage again. Because he'd moved and he didn't have a spare room and so I moved into his garage. I was living in Davey's garage. It was all right. Yes. <laughs> pissing, so, in, pissing in bottles, though. there's no toilet. It's really difficult. Right? You ever pissed in bottles? Or yeah, because I, I lived on the, I lived <laughs> in one of those ter, ter, uh, terraced houses, which was quite high, and the toilet was in the basement, so you were just never yeah. going to go down. Two flights of really narrow, steep stairs that yeah. you, know, you, you, you got a bottle and you pissed in it. You become uniquely aware of the capacity of your own bladder. It's, it's, you know, you, until you have to do you, things like that, why would you even care how much is in there? Or the but colour. Like you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you become fascinated with... <laughs> you obviously became... I was always, it was always volume for me, because if you're running out of bottles, if you've you only got one bottle, you know, I just think if you've never been in that position, you would never know the, the panic. Well, probably- also, the, the other thing is, and I don't know if you did this, but I did, which then I got caught. I used to tip it out the window and think, oh, that's fine. And then one day someone said, God, there's a really horrible, pissy smell at the front door. And it was like where, you know, it's like, oh, my God, they've, they've rumbled me. They've, they know that's would- me. You know, it was like, because you just went, oh, I'm just going to tip it out and do it the next day, don't you, or the next night. So there you have it. Well, yeah, why, would it- you, why would you tip it out of the window? 
because it was like too much effort to go down to the toilet holding this kind of, I don't know, litre or this plastic bottle. You just thought, oh, I can't be bothered because you're slummy. You've kind of got no class and one's got no hygiene while I'm talking about myself. And so you just went, oh, I'll just tip it out the window quickly, go to sleep. Oh, I need a piss. And then you do it. And then the next day, and you do this for a while and you think this is all good. I'm getting, I'm, it's not like you're committing a crime. You're just being very oh, disgustingly disgusting. Not a crime. It's not a crime. <laughs> it could be a crime in some place. I I couldn't do it because I was in a garage and I had no windows. No, you so I'd have to go. I mean, do you know what? Thinking about it, I could have gone out and tipped it out behind, but I was like, no. It was difficult because if I came to the limit of how do we get to be talking about this? Because living in the fucking garage, isn't it? And then the bottles, the, the Jonestown. Should we go back to the Brian Jones? Your, your, your listeners don't care about this, surely. <laughs> they will. Who's they will Someone <laughs> God, this has gone a bit strange. Never heard this on a podcast before. Um, yes, that's fine. Um, yeah, so the Brian Jones, but you were talking about your, yeah, and I said, how did you manage to suddenly get a phone call to go to Toronto? Just because Davey asked me to go over there, and then I ended up there and I was hanging out with Dan Burke in Toronto. Do you know him? He's a big promoter, he's putting on shows at the Silver Dollar, and Davey used to run a club called Blow Up over there. So, and what else, what did we do? Me and him went fishing out on Whitefish Lake, which is about four hours north of Sudbury. Went out on a boat, staying with his father and on. Yeah, his goddaughter. I'm his, I'm, I'm his daughter's godfa- godfather, God helper. She said, I said, I'm just like God. I'm completely absent, probably fictional. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. That was a good line. I like that. Yeah, that was- yeah, I know. Yeah, that's why I thought, thought, thought I'd share that one with you. So, yeah, that was how it, and then, yeah, that was two albums. Where were we? I get confused myself. You know? Yeah, so that was Canada, which was, mm. oh, God knows, actually. That was that was after or before the Brian, Brian Jonestown massacre? Just before, just before. So you had that experience that took you up to yeah. the... Because the... I got a phone call. I was in the garage and, and Davey knocked on the door and said, there's a phone call for you because I didn't have a phone. And it, I said, who is it? And he said, I don't know. So he gave me the phone. And it was the Brian Jonestown Messages manager saying, do you want to come on tour? And I was like, why not? I'm in a garage. Why not go on tour? Go yeah. On tour. <laughs> so where do you store your stuff at this stage? Do you sort of lose it and then have to buy new stuff? Or do you just kind of leave it in someone's lockup and then go, oh, right, I must just pick it up and I have little piles of stuff around I have less piles of stuff I just sold my bass guitar that was one of my biggest bits of stuff I've had left so I got rid of that I was quite relieved I've got very little stuff actually I've, I've got hardly any stuff I got rid of most of it I used to leave it in piles but then you get back and it's all gone mouldy so I just like fuck leaving it just, you just learn to have little I've mostly got art materials now do you know got a few clothes got a laptop Little microphone, paper, loads of paints. Depends. Art's fucking heavy, do you know what I mean? But yeah, I don't know what stuff do you need? There's stuff fucking everywhere. Everybody's like, what about your stuff? And I'm like, if you stop looking at stuff as actually yours and just be like, okay, I need some stuff. There's no fucking shortage of stuff in the world, is there? You know, no, go down the beat. Stuff fucking everywhere. There's too much. It's not like has anybody ever said, oh my God, there's a stuff shortage? Not in our lifetime. No, it's unlikely to happen. It's I not going to happen, is it? No. <laughs> We're all fucking mad for stuff. We, so, yeah, we, I don't have much. 
Yeah. So look, then you write a book. How does this come about? Because you get a publishing deal with Faber and Faber, don't you? You see, you leap in, there's a fair ramp. There's a fair ramp into that story. So around 2014, after the Jonestown, I'd been playing in an Icelandic band, which we'll just skip over the dead skeletons for a minute. But I was just writing. I'd been writing poetry when I got to Toronto because I didn't know what the fuck else to do. I started to write poetry because I thought this is going to be a great career move because who doesn't want to hear poetry from the bass player of a band that about 12 people have heard of? So it wasn't that. I had this project. I'm like, fuck, what's poetry? I'm going to make a book. I'm going to, I'm going I could put it together, staple it together and knock it out. Or I could learn to make like a hardback book. So I learned to make handmade books. I started making them. So I made like 130 handmade poetry books and I sold them again through my website. And then I wrote another book of short stories and I handbound that and I sold 130 of them on the website and just put them in the post to people and it was all lino printed and da 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 to do all that. I like to do that. And then I was going to write another book. I decided I'm going to write another book. So I moved to Croatia, Zagreb, because somebody had said, I've got a spare room for you. Right. Basically, it's like that. If you got if you got a cheap room, I'll fucking move in. Do you know, <laughs> a free room. I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. Well, I was in Zagreb, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go there, right? But I had no, absolutely no way of knowing that I was going to survive over there. I had very little money coming in, very little, and I'm just like, okay, I'm not, I don't have to pay rent. I can just live on bread and water if necessary. Do you know, what I mean? I'm just going to sit in a room, write a fucking book. So I'm there, and I'm like. Two, I don't know how far I was into it. I don't know, 4,000 words into it. And then my brother, my brother, I have a Dutch brother, and he's a literary manager in Holland in The Hague. He manages Dutch writers, big, big Dutch writers. And he said, I think I can pitch this to Faber. And I'd kind of been friends friends with Lee I was aware of Lee Braxton who was working at Faber and was publishing the books through Twitter and I'd kind of had a couple of little interactions with him and he think he knew that I was writing these books so my brother bless him found Lee and laid one of my handmade books on Lee who promptly fucking lost it I think he lost the handmade book that was given to him but he was then presented with three chapters and he read three chapters from my previous book and then I got a call from him in Zagreb going, do you want to write a book for Faber? And I was like, yeah, fucking, I'd really like to be able to pay my rent. It'd be great. So that would be good. So I just did it. And he was like, when will it be finished? I was like, in about a month. It took me two months to write a book. I just sat in that fucking room. I was like, eight hours ago, I was like, talk to me. Don't really fuck all. Banging my daffodil. Do you know what I mean? Do you know that shit? Fighter pilot space really not a good idea for a man of my age. But it fucking got that book finished quickly, I'll tell you that. And then, yeah, I wrote that, went back, edited it in Berlin, bing, bong, bing. Then I got evicted. <laughs> and I made some handmade copies of that, like 130 of them. And I was working down at Batanian, which is like this old squatted orphanage in Berlin. I was working down in the cellar there, finishing the books and learning Japanese stab binding. And then I went on the road, you know, so I've been on the road for like five years. 
Amy, that is amazing. Yeah. That is incredible. What was, I just, it slightly, it couldn't quite catch you. What was that thing about the fighter pilots you mentioned? Fighter pilots, the daffodil, yeah, I edited the book. I edited, I copy edited the book because you have to copy edit. You write the book, then you rewrite it. Then you say it's like three writes. You have to do three drafts. It's a lot of fucking work. You get three drafts and then you copy edit, you know, so to get through to the final draft and a copy edit. And I was like doing the daffodil. I believe they use it as a study aid now. It's like, right. It's Jesus. One of those. And it's yeah. been, it's kind of, oh, yeah, you just mentioned you were in an Icelandic band before that. Dead, dead Skeletons, yeah. Dead, right. dead Skeletons. Yeah, from, I don't know how the fuck I ended up. Oh, I do know how I ended up in an Icelandic band because I'd been to, oh, God, let me think about this. <laughs> it's hard to keep track myself, to be honest. So I'd been on a Jonestown tour when I'd been touring with them, and when we played at Glastonbury, Nonny, who was, was an Icelandic artist, I'd done a song with a Jonestown called Golden Frost. So he'd sung on it. It was this vaguely terrifying kind of song. And he came and sang that at Glastonbury. So I got to know Nonny. And then at the end of the Jonestown tour, I'd guess very long and rambling story, sorry. The end of the Jonestown tour, I'd picked up with a guy called Ryan Van Cree. And he'd been like, where are you going? Then I'd gone to Philly. I'd stayed with Ryan from a band called Asteroid Number 4 in Philly. And then from Philly, Ryan was going to Iceland. I was like, you should meet this guy I know called Jan, Jan Simon, the nonny. He's like, okay, give him the phone number. And then we went our separate ways, and I didn't see Ryan till four years after that when I got off the plane in Iceland to see both him and Jan picking me up to go and be in Dead Skeletons, which was the band that Ryan and Nonny had formed with Henrik Bjornsson. Uh, after they'd visited him there, so that's a peculiar circularity. If that makes any sense, I'm not sure if I really, if I really. Amazing. How long to... did that? How did how long did that kind of adventure last? Have a guess. Have a guess how long it lasted. Give them my history. Twelve months. About just over twelve. Months. About two years. We did a few gigs, and we made a live album live in Berlin. And I honestly think that's probably the last full band I'll ever be in. And it seems appropriate, you know, somehow. Yes. Well, it's great. So so with the book that came out about four or five years ago, that's just kind of you're you're doing readings. So what's your latest kind of projects that you're working on after the wonderful world that was lockdown last year and the year before? What am I doing at the moment? I'm mainly publishing through my Patreon. I'd really I'm just working through there. I've got a couple of books of poetry I'm going to finish. I'm going to read them again and put them out through there. Um, uh, What else am I doing? I've been painting a lot, actually. (laughs) Painting and making lino cuts during lockdown. I was making a lot of linoleum cuts, which I got into through making the handmade books. So I got into kind of lino printing and through that into painting. I've been painting, so... uh, yeah, I just carry on doing that shit, paying and writing and making books and trying to keep my head above water. And, but it's mainly going out through the Patreon. I, I, most of the artwork goes out through there and through my website as well. Yes, you know when I when I can be bothered. <laughs> I've been gilding that. my lino. I've been gilding my lino cuts. It's really it's really funny because I got back to Berlin and I was like, okay, I've got this huge collection of 
lino cuts that I've used to print. And I haven't quite got the heart to throw them out. There's a lot of work carving them, you know, and they're hand carved. And then you print off the hand carved print, off the hand carved plates. And you're supposed to throw them away when you've taken your limited run of prints. But I can't quite bring myself to throw them out. So I was like, fuck, what I'm going to do is I'm going to gild them. I've been learning to gild. So I've been gilding my old lino cuts and (laughs) trying to find good homes for them because. And I have a great incentive because I'm so, uh, what's the word? Um, what's the word? I wonder because I, I'm prone to peregrination. I have a very good incentive to get rid of all the artwork that I fucking make. I don't want to keep it. If you've got to carry it, you know, you, you become acutely aware of how valuable it is. To yes. You know. This is true. It's, it's remarkable the way that works. Yeah, absolutely. So is it the case then that that your your music days have gone or are you just waiting for the next phone call? I did a few sessions. I, I, did, I was playing in the pubs over in Ireland. They convinced me to learn a few Irish folk songs, so I'd play a few of them and I'll sing if, you know, if, there's, a, if there's a people around and there's, somebody buys me a whiskey. And I, I've been actually putting some stuff out again through the Patreon. And I've just kind of started doing some weird little drone poems through the Patreon, which I've been doing literally the last two weeks. I haven't done any multi-track recording at home for years. I've just got back into it the last two weeks. So they're going out through through the good supporters I have. It's got me through fucking lockdown completely. Those fuckers got me through lockdown because it was a fairly tricky time but so yeah i don't know the bands i'm really i just can't imagine i can't my ears are damaged to be honest after years of like working in heavy industry and working in heavy bands i have brutal tinnitus and uh hyperacuity so that some certain frequencies are painful to me so for me to stand next to a drum kit is difficult now you know, yes. Even with earplugs, I, tr- I tried it with with dead skeletons towards the end of those tours. I was wearing plugs all the time, and it just wasn't really helping. You know, and it became an unpleasant experience to play like loud music. But whereas before, I was like absolutely in love with it. It's just if you're if if you're recoiling from that sound you used to run to, it's like it's probably time to do something else. Do you know? So yes. And it does sound like you've got an amazing ability to reinvent yourself or at least got to develop new skills, which is which is apparently one of the most important things we have in life is to keep, you know, finding new things to do. It keeps you, I don't know, it doesn't keep you young, but I think it keeps you very sort of stimulated. It keeps the brain supple. Just keep the brain supple. Don't, don't let it never ossification I just don't want to ossify you know it's like and it kind of keeps my enthusiasm up to like okay that's a new thing and that's a new thing and it's I know I'm probably fucking ADHD or something it's probably some clinical clinical reason for, for it's probably you know it's not a gift it's just a byproduct of my of my, <laughs> my what's the word Jesus I've gone soft in the brain I think I think a lot Downs made me soft in the brain. It's a byproduct of my condition, probably. Yes, this, this could be. This could <laughs> be true. 
This is, but look, but if you were, if you could have whispered something to your 16 year old self starting out in, in this wonderful world, is there anything that you would have said, look, this is a good bit of advice because frankly, Mr. Shankly, you might need to remember this later on. Is there anything that you would have just whispered or spoke, even if they ignored you? Don't share needles. There you go. Don't share needles. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. At six, at sixteen, that would have been really. I wouldn't have listened. I really wouldn't have listened. But it would be. It would have been good advice. No. Good. My good advice would be. Okay. For for me, at which point in my life? Well, I suppose as you was, you know, with with the all the experience you've had and all those kind of journeys and and adventures i just wondered what kind of key kind of bits that you would think god that that's something that i've learned that i would tell my younger self you know starting don't worry, out don't worry team uh, yeah I don't know. what would i tell myself what would i fucking that's such a difficult question what advice would i give to myself that i would have turned that i know i wouldn't have taken it don't worry about money do you know what? There was a, a certain point in my life I used to worry about fucking money. Worry about and I was like, hang on. It's like, you've made it this fucking far. And your worry hasn't made you any richer. It just hasn't made you It's just made you fucking miserable. You're like, oh, God, how am I going to do this? And it's just like, you know, believe in... I don't know. I wouldn't, I don't, because I, the advice I would give myself, how would you... Would I want to do anything different? Do you know what I mean? I'm not sure I would. There's certain things, you know. Like don't drink all that whiskey on that particular full moon, maybe. <laughs> Occasionally. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> you did one. and you did say you know? earlier about learning lots of skills because they'll come in useful. Yeah, yeah, learn yeah, just but I did that anyway, do you know what I mean? Purely so, by just purely by purely purely by accident of Fortune and misfortune sometimes. Yes. What seemed like misfortune. What seemed like misfortune sometimes wasn't. Or or the skills I learned in misfortune became useful later on. Do you know what I mean? So it's really hard. What advice? What advice? Can I get back to you on that one? Yes. You need to think about it. I I never thought about it. (laughs) Is there a particular book? Is there a particular book you would recommend anybody that you would have yes. said, what's that? Travels in the Cévennes with a Donkey by Robert Louis Stevenson. It's Ooh. a fucking great book in which Robert Louis Stevenson crosses the Cévennes with a donkey, surprisingly given the title of the book. And it's just a great travel book because he sets out and you can tell that he's not thinking he's going to be writing a book about a donkey. The donkey's just there. <laughs> to carry his shit on his on his long walk, during which presumably he's expecting to have his biblical vision, you know, as we were talking about earlier. Mm. But but actually, the book, as much as it's about him traveling, you know, sleeping in, in the trees and doing this, it's about his relationship with the donkey, which is equally infuriating and enlightening to him and eventually falls in love with the donkey of course because even though the donkey is stubborn irascible and prone to behavior that he might not consider to be to be appropriate even though he's not a donkey so how would he fucking know so yeah it's a good book travels travels in this event with a donkey and i'm currently reading uh the poems of 
Where's that gone? I'm supposed to remember which book I'm reading, aren't I? But I the Poems of Francois Villon. I, I remembered that without looking at it. He was a oh. disreputable poet five from 500 years ago. He's banished from Paris. He right. was tortured by the... Like, you know, it never happens. You never hear of poets being banished from Paris now, do you? No. Tortured by the clergy. Or have they? Poets, poets have no power anymore, I would imagine in the older days, the arts were a little bit sort of touchy at times. I think composers also had a lot of pressure, didn't they, to sort of come up with the goods, otherwise they also could get sort of murdered by the king. So um, I mean, that that would suck, wouldn't it? <laughs> the, the pressure's on, a hit or death. I know some managers that would be like, that would be so great. Uh, write a hit or I'm going to fucking kill you. I think it's often, I think with some periods in history, it was like, write something really upbeat and happy because I want to look good at this next kind of little gig that I'm doing. And if the, on. And if the composer thinks, I think you're a bit of a dickhead and I hate you, it's probably like, God, how am I going to be able to do this and keep my artistic integrity at the same time? So I think that sometimes yeah. can be a bit tricky. But there you go. Artistic integrity is it's interesting. I mean, I was working with a guy in the kitchen there and he's from uh, Mexico City and he was telling me about the... Uh, like kind of narco balladeers over there. <laughs> you can kind of, if you're too good a balladeer, your narco opponent, then the narcos will fucking whack you because they're like, kill, kill the opposing narcos balladeer. You know, your bard will be fucking executed. So just be mediocre. Yeah. You know, that's probably, that's probably good. That's probably the advice I'd give myself. Yeah. Be mediocre. <laughs> fucking exhaustingly. Mediocre. <laughs> I think that's that's a good advice for anybody, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> if I had children, that's why I tell them. Don't just fucking grow. Be a watchmaker. Grow, grow flowers. Grow flowers. That's a good. One. I'm growing basil at the moment. That's very nice. Yes. Like well, that's that's always. They don't let you down that's a herb, fine. do they? No, and just need a small window, small pot, you know, and it's just, they're just so hopeless. You look at seeds and they look so like gravelly and fucking useless and it's just like, look at it, it's like nothing. And then it happens. you've got something to put in your pasta, then it's in your pasta. It's in the pasta and it gives you all the flavour you need, so that's all good. So there you go. But look, Miracle of life. It is. I know. We're all one, aren't we, in a holistic love fest. Did you just well, only briefly... Some, only some of us... Go on, sorry. Did you enjoy your Glastonbury experience, by the way? Which one? Oh, you had more than... The one where, the one where I was poaching eggs. I was no. I had, one, I had one where I turned into a dragon and oh. poached 10,000 eggs of... Shainu. I was working at a cafe called Shainu. Very good. Right. And squatting in a teepee. But is that that not the Glastonbury experience you would it's in my second book story? No, I was thinking the one where you actually play not just for cooking, but playing live. One that I played like it was it was nice because the one previously I've been poaching eggs. And then the one the next one was like 10 years later, and I was playing on the main stage with the Brian Jones Town Massacre. And then the next time I went back, I was promoting my book at the smallest stage at the very top of the festival. So I kind of like, you know, what happens with me and Glastonbury? I got a seesaw. I seesaw between the heights and the depths. So did I enjoy it? Yeah, I enjoy Glastonbury. I like it there. 
Nice. I like sitting. I like sitting in fields on drugs. Absolutely, on 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 the micro dots. Um, did you and with your kind of readings with the book, does it? Um, do you always get a good response? Do, do people love you? They love me. <clears throat> Only if they're not in the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I find. Do people love me? Uh, no, they fucking hate writers. People hate writers. They look at you really askance. If they think you might write about them, people start like acting different because they're like, fuck, you might write about me. And what's the old saying? It's like, you should always be nice to your children because they might grow up to be writers. Uh, do you know, do you know, are you familiar with that expression? No, I've never come across I like that. It. I like it. There's a nice Kurt Vonnegut quote as well. Well, it works people- two ways because it's like, you know, because obviously the parent can say, well, also, you know, if you want me to keep the will as it is and you want any of my inheritance, you know, make me look good, matey. That's, that's if the there is an inheritance. I mean, that's, you know, I'm open for bribes. If, I, yes. if anybody out there is worried, well, I might write, just send me a fucking check and I'll happily not write a book for a check. Generally. Yes. Did you, I mean, when so you, I when you did the book. The table. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when you did the book. Was there anything you had to take out or did you think, no, that's all honest and everyone's happy with it? Was there anything I had to take out? Uh, There's nothing I had to take out. I mean, nobody... Have you read the the handmade versions? No. There was only a hundred of those. Yeah. And that's the great thing, isn't it? Yes. About production being in the hands of the workers. It is. I'm absolutely the Socialist Workers Party. So, Did yeah. you? So, which 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 copy of the book are you, are you talking about? The one which is if, on that. If, if they indeed differ, of course. Playing the bass with three left hands. That one, from... yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which 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 version? The handmade one or the or the published version? The published version. Uh, the lawyered version. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember honestly. I can hardly remember. Only the hallucinations are real in that book. I've said it before. I don't know. Memory itself is a hallucination and a tapestry of our opinion. So how can I be expected to defend your tapestry against mine? But the, everything's in there that needed to be in there, yes. probably. And, and if it isn't, it'll be in the next book. But maybe in only five copies, because I think I'll only make 100 copies of the next book, and I might make each 25 different. That's a nice idea, isn't it? Oh, that would be, that's art, isn't it? Well, that is that is a kind of art. It's a kind. (laughs) It's fucking crafty. It's art. It's crafty, isn't it? I mean, they say that making books isn't art. It's a craft. You know, is it an art? Is it what's the difference between an art and a craft? What's the difference between an artist and an artisan? I find that interesting because I always like to. There's a certain art and and done beautifully. And, you know, I I like the idea of confusing people. Are you confused? Am I confusing? Well, I think think craft doesn't have quite the same kudos that an artist has. There's something... It doesn't doesn't have the kudos. It doesn't. I don't know. know. Like, I did some drywall recently, and it was a particularly tricky corner. There was all sorts of... joining angles and it was kind of old beams and it's a tricky tricky to get flat things on walls and when the final corner came together i was like oh, i felt as good about that as i did about 
I don't know, probably better about that than finishing like an album or writing a book. I felt good. So it's just like, yeah, it's right. Who can say it's wrong? Do you know? Yes, and absolutely. I, I still, you know, I can't think of, you know, I'd still be like, oh, fuck, I've done, I could have done that bit better. Do you know? There's always that, isn't there? That kind of drives you on that little nagging thing that's always at you saying, oh, we could have done that better. I've done that, but which presumably makes you better at what you do, but isn't much fun to actually live with. No, it drives you to madness. I think that would be well, candy. That's what that's what drinks for, though, isn't it? <laughs> make the voices, make the voices go alright. My mate James Crookshank, he was an Australian musician, good friend of mine. James, God rest his soul. If he had one, if he hadn't sold it. He's to say, and he's like, well, when I sit down to write a song, he says, it's a long process. And he'd, he'd work with a band called The Cruel Sea, and he worked with Mick Harvey and had a bad season or whatever. He was, but he was just a friend of mine. That's, he said, when I sit down to write a song, he says, I have to like, I have to shoo away, shoo away the nagging demons of self-doubt. No, 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 you're not very good at that. Why are you about You have to shoo them away. He said then the lumbering beast of indolence walks into the room and said, oh, oh, fuck it, why not just sit and watch that fucking video of a dog instead? And he's like, because you can fuck off as well. Do you know? And then the kind of the fear, the fear backs are like, ah, hey, it'll go wrong, why don't you get a fucking proper job? You know, this is not going to pay the rent. So you have to shoo away all these phantoms of your own mind before you can even sit down and play one night I always like that explanation he had for yes it. well it's a good one actually there you mm. go that's and I think with age we sort of have many more of those voices that creep up you don't get them when you're 16 or 18 one's too sort of frivolous and slightly confident or cocky but when you get older it's just you know there's a whole gang of them aren't there constantly nagging I, I might throw me back out <laughs> <laughs> Don't write that poem. You might throw your back out. Have you ever, have you, have you ever thrown your back out? Thankfully, not. I haven't. But I've, I've heard it. I heard it's painful, so I'm trying to avoid it. You know, there's yeah, some. I'm, touch, I'm touching wood for you. I really am. Thank you. It's not. It's not a pleasant experience. My dad. Do you know where mine went? I did. I did my. Sorry, go on. Your dad. Mom. No, my dad used to have a lot of back problems often. Ooh. I used to see him laying on the floor trying to sort of recover to get back to work the next day. So there you go. How did you do yours in, by the way? I'm only telling you because it's actually a funny story, even though it wasn't funny at the time. I was working for a, for a removal company, right? And we were moving this guy out of his house. And I was I was going backwards down the stairs and I had, he's had an orthopedic mattress. Have you ever picked up an orthopedic mattress? Once many decades ago, weigh a fucking ton, right? Well, fucking so I'm going backwards down the stairs with this orthopedic mattress, and it felt like somebody hit me in the middle of my back with a sledgehammer. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, really, but like, you know, it was kind of funny because we were carrying an orthopedic mattress, yes. And you thought, well, how we need... laughed on our way down to casual to him. <laughs> <laughs> how long did it take to recover, by the way? A year. Sciatica, yeah, it's pretty painful. Ends of your toes, don't numb, and it's pretty. But gradually, yeah, exercise and uh, yeah, henbane compresses and acupuncture, voodoo. I managed to get better, but yeah, it's it's a long process. But yeah, sciatica is a fucking misery. Biggest nerve in the human body, isn't it? It's like toothache down your ass and into your toes. (laughs) 
Yes, it's uh, I've had sciatica, which has been yes, very painful. So um, I remember it's, it is misery. I remember sort of I used to sort of get it in the evenings and have to just lay on the floor and stick my leg in the air. Even when I was going for a walk once, I had to do that a few times because it was just horrendous. I think it was mine sciatica. Got, mine got better. I mean, you know, it's sciatica when it runs down your buttock and into your leg. Is it's unmistakable. It's just like that nerve and it can get to the tips of your toes because that nerve runs all the way from the tips of your toes up through your bottom and into your lower back. It's the biggest nerve in the universe, sciatic nerve. And you know when it twangs, but it can be anything from like a dull ache into like a spreading misery down your leg. Hot and cold bath if you get it really bad. So I used to, when I used to get really bad, get into a hot bath, get into a cold bath. That's when you're really yelping with it. Jesus Christ. Mine, mine went away. Mine, mine's, you know, with exercise, really exercise is the key to it. And anti-inflammatories. That's the thing. Not painkillers. Don't take fucking painkillers for it. It's to me, I sound like a doctor, don't I? Yes. Okay, don't take painkillers because with painkillers, you work through it. It dulls the pain. Anti-inflammatories take the inflammation away, and the inflammation is what you nip in your fucking sciatic nerve with. So if you can stop it inf- inflaming, diclofenic, three days diclofenic, first nip, three days of that. Jesus. Anyway. So there you go. There's a, there's a lot to take on here, actually. I'll have to um, make some notes. But look, this has been amazing. Thank you ever so much, Will, for giving me the time for this. If you want, I can always send you the My link pleasure. for this, and you can yes, always use it on your social media platform sites. Tell you, yeah. so when when will it be out? Hopefully next week. Okay, great. Because I have to apologise to a friend of mine who I said I was going to do an interview for, and I haven't done. And now I've done yours first, and I'll feel terrible if it comes out and he finds out. So yeah, anyway, I just yeah, I've, got, I've got to do another interview because I've done this one, but it's been fun. Thank you. Thank you, Will. Take care. Okay. Have a good night. Yes. Thank See you very later. much. Bye bye. There you go. That is showbiz for you. That's also a beautiful ending to a beautiful conversation. That was me in conversation with Will Carruthers, who has got a book out. Do buy it. It's available from all good bookshops, also from his website as well. Just Google Will Carruthers. Um, It's called Playing the Bass with Three Left Hands. And um, yes, anyway, just go and find his website. It's all good. Anyway, this is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, For some nice reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And these have all been archived, aren't you lucky? Um, And the show is available from Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, and it's groovy. So there you go. Have a great week. Stay safe.